Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bonnie. Well, as we come to this text uh, this morning, uh, it's important to remember or to know that Uh, What we studied last week at the end of chapter 5 and what we're studying this week at the beginning of chapter 6, they kind of go together. Even in your Bibles, you might have kind of a heading over uh, verse 5 or chapter 5, verse 11 that says warning against apostasy. And then there's not another heading until after this particular text because they go together. Like there was the warning last week of not growing in your, your walk with Jesus. This week there's a warning of like don't, don't walk away from the faith. And we'll, we'll explore what that looks like. But as uh, I was preparing for this morning, I was, a, a story was brought to mind. Um, I don't know of the, how true this particular story is, but it's kind of a story from the Middle Ages, and there were a number of individuals who were kind of candidating to be the driver of the carriage of the king's children. And there was a place where the uh, carriage would have to go sometimes that was along the edge of kind of a ravine or a cliff. And so in the interview process, they're asking each of them, well, you know, how skilled of a driver are you? You're driving the 
the king's children. We, we want skilled drivers. And so they would ask them, well, how skilled of a driver are you? How close can you get to the edge of the cliff? Like, how good are you? And different ones would say, well, you know, I can get this close. I'm that skilled of a driver. And this one would say, well, I, want, I can get this close to the edge, you know, with the kids and keep them safe. We're not going to fall off. Well, the last guy who candidates for the job says, I don't want to be anywhere near the edge of the cliff. In fact, I'm going to drive as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly can if I'm carrying the kid's children, the king's children. And oftentimes when the, the subject comes up about people walking away from the church or people walking away from their faith, the conversation tends to happen like at the edge of the cliff. Like, how far can I get to the edge before I fall off? Or what happens if I just happen to be walking along the edge and I just fall off? Could that just happen to me? But the reality is the emphasis of Scripture isn't on how close can I get to the edge. The emphasis is on pursue Christ. Pursue him. Get to know him more deeply, more intimately. Not how close can I get to the edge that I might fall off. So let's keep that in mind as we jump into this text, because as the author starts in chapter 6, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's saying, pursue maturity of Christ. He's in saying, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying, let's forget the gospel. He's not saying the gospel is not really that important. He's not saying, oh, the gospel's necessary for you to get saved, but then you just kind of put that on the shelf and there's more important things for you to grow in maturity. No, he's, he's exhorting this group of believers to press into maturity with Christ. And he does start with the fundamentals. I mean, if you look here at verses uh, 1 and 2, as he says, go on to maturity, he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He kind of unpacks some of the fundamentals of the faith. He unpacks repentance and faith. Like there's a need for us to turn from the old way to Christ. There's a need for us to trust in Jesus, to trust in what he's done, to trust that God raised him from the dead. That's absolutely essential. Those are essential truths that we should learn and know that we're justified before God because of what Jesus has done. Foundational truth, absolutely important, something we should remind ourselves of. And then when he talks about instructions about washings and laying on of hands, some of those are referring to some, somewhat the the Old Testament cleansing rites. So he's, he's saying don't focus on the old, but yet as we, as we jump to the New Testament for us, you know, there is a washing that we encounter or that we uh, partake in. It's called baptism, where we're lowered into the water and we come out symbolizing our, our death and then raising to new life in Christ. So he wants that to be foundational. When we make disciples, what do we do? We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. So that's foundational. When he talks about laying on of hands, he's, 
He's really kind of referring to an Old Testament custom, which some of the Hebrews would have known, but fast forward to us, there was, as you know, in the book of Acts, a laying out of hands when the Spirit of God came. And at different times, the Spirit of God would come and they would lay on hands. So we need to know about the empowering presence of the Spirit. So again, essential truth. Then he talks about resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. We, we need to be reminded that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's sealed for us, our resurrection. Jesus even said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then lastly, eternal judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we should be sobered as believers, certainly as new Christians, that, that judgment is real that everyone will stand before God. So these are foundational truths. I know we kind of rushed through them, but they're foundational. They're important. We don't want to forget them. We want to be reminded about them, but we don't want to just say, well, we've got it figured out. I'm good. You know, I learned about the gospel once. I'm fine. I'm just going to go on. We, We need to grow in our understanding of Christ. The author is exhorting them, grow in your understanding of Christ. Grow deeper in your understanding of Christ. Don't just stay at the elementary truths about Christ. That's why we study God's word together in small groups. That's why we study God's word together here on Sunday mornings. That's why we encourage you to get into God's word, because we want to know more about Christ. Even if all you studied was, say, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus covers, this is, this is what he covers. He covers the Beatitudes, he covers evangelism, he covers Christ fulfilling the law, how to deal with worry and anger and lust and relationships and your enemies, how you should think about money or fasting and giving or worry. And he teaches about prayer and intimacy with God. So if all you took was those three chapters, you could grow deeper in your walk with Christ, in knowing Christ. Because Matthew, or Jesus said at the end of, of that sermon, he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And that's what the author wants this group of believers to know. And that's a fresh reminder for us. We want to be deeply rooted. We want to move on, not just from learning the basics, but we want to continue to understand and grow deeper into the glories of Calvary. There's a song I used to sing that said, Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. So don't let me just stop at the basics. Help me to understand you more. And we talked about that a lot last week. But then he transitions to a warning again and warns them to be sobered by the reality of apostasy. Because he starts with, for it is impossible. And we'll read that in just a minute. But But what is the word apostasy? I know that the title, these headings in your Bible, they're not 
They're not authoritative. They're some, someone wrote them in there, some scribes somewhere along the way as he's breaking things up in the text, but it does describe something that's being talked about here. And the word apostasy, what that means, if you've never heard that term, it means the abandonment of true Christian faith. Apostasy may take the form of outright renunciation or abandonment of of a recognizable Christian lifestyle. Because this is what it says. Look at your Bibles. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. This is one of the most terrifying and sobering scriptures that that you would find in the New Testament. For it is impossible, if you skip down to chapter 6, to restore them again to repentance. That's what it says. And so what, what what is the author getting at? What is he... What does he mean? Because there's certainly been a lot of debate over this text throughout Christian history. There's been debate about, well, what does this mean? Does, what, what I thought someone said, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved. But I have other friends that say, no, no, you can fall away. You can walk away from Jesus. So which is it? And what is he trying to teach us here? He's warning the saints, of the reality of walking away from God. What would happen if you were to completely reject God? Now, let's just get practical as we think about the church. So we think about the church gathered, whether it's our local church or the broader church gathered. You're familiar with the parable about the tares and the wheat, right? The wheat is planted, it grows, but then, but then the enemy comes and he sows tares into the field and they grow up too. And as they're growing, they all kind of look the same. But we know at the end of that story, when the harvest time comes, those tares, they are cut down and they are thrown in the fire to be burned. So there are individuals who might be a part of the church or, or may look like they're a part of the church, but they're not actually Christians, people have never actually trusted in Christ. Now, sadly, I have a man who was a friend who was actually a family member at one time, but because of divorce, he's not technically a family member anymore. And his story goes like this. Grew up in church, 
uh, you know, memorized certain Bible verses, did all the good things, and then he went to Bible college because, of course, all the godly young men go to Bible college to become pastors because that's what they do. So he went to Bible college. He studied to become a pastor. He graduates Bible college, and then he goes and he serves as a youth pastor with the hope someday of maybe like working his way up in the ranks in some local churches and then becoming a pastor because that's what good boys do. Then somewhere 10, 12 years into his marriage, he declares that he is not a Christian and he walks away from Christ. And then another seven years later, he, he walks away from the marriage as well. And if, if you talk to him today, he would not tell you, I was a Christian. He would tell you this, because he's told me this. He said, I was never a Christian. He said, I did those things because it, it brought me acceptance with my family. It brought me acceptance among a group of people. And it's where I found my significance. And the reality is, is he was putting on a facade for everyone around. And at some point, you, you can't support that. At some point, the house of cards that you build falls when you aren't truly repentant of your sin and, and trusting in Christ. Now, he would say clearly, I was not a Christian. So there, are, there is the reality that there are sometimes in the midst of, of local churches, individuals who, who aren't Christians. And that, that's not what's necessarily even being addressed here, but there's a reality if you are coming to a local church or you are here and you are building the house of cards, you can get that right today. You can get that right today. You don't have to put on a facade. We don't want fake Christians. We want you to know that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin if we would simply repent and believe in him. You don't have to do stuff to get acceptance from him. You need to know that he went to the cross for you. And I'm praying for my friend that he would repent and that he would believe in Christ. So that, that's sobering that you could, you could grow up in that place, but no one actually challenged him. It was kind of like, like the acceptable thing, and he just kind of hid behind that. But then maybe there's the scenario of, of Christians who are struggling struggling with their faith. They've come to faith in Christ and they struggle with sin and they seem to be, be going back to things that they used to do and, and, and they've experienced doubts. Maybe you've experienced doubts. Maybe you read this passage and you wonder, have I passed the point of no return? I mean, even if you read uh, verses like uh, Matthew 5.13, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's sobering. That's, that's scary. I had a friend in college who was a roommate of mine the last six months before I got married. His name was Brad. 
And it seemed like every night for about three months. And, and I, when I say every night, I wish I, I wish I was exaggerating. But it just seemed like every night, myself or one of my roommates were having a conversation with Brad. Did he commit the unforgivable sin? Did he walk away from Jesus at some point and now he can no longer walk back? He's like, well, what if I've, what if I've walked away? He's like, if I've walked away, the Bible tells me I can't, I can't come back. So, so should I keep living this way? But I'm not really sure if, if I've walked away. Like, what's going on? And he was constantly gripped with fear. And we're having this conversation about like walking on the edge of, you know, are you walking on the edge or have you fallen off or are you not back on it? And it was back and forth. And, and honestly, it was exhausting. One of my roommates was kind of like, yeah, I think you have. I'm just tired of talking with you. You're just a pagan, you know, just live your life like you want. And he did. He was like, I'm done. Sadly, that friend was the one that I just told you about who wasn't even a Christian. He's trying to convince the other guy that he's saved. But, but, but Brad's problem was that he, he, was, he was having the conversation about the edge. And I don't think I was mature enough at the time as a young Christian to be like, wait, wait, that, that's not where we should be having the conversation, Brad. We should be having the conversation about pressing into Christ. Yes, we should be humbled and the fear of God should come into us when we read passages of scripture like this. But, because we can be afraid even thinking about passages like Matthew 7, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's humbling. That's scary. But if you don't stop and go, wait a minute, there's a key phrase in what Jesus said. He said, I never knew you. And the writer of Hebrews is getting at that very thing. He's saying, press in, press in, move on to maturity. Brothers and sisters, press into Christ. Know Christ more intimately. Don't be focused on how far can I go or worry if you're falling in. No, press into Christ. Delight in him. Know that you are found in him. And there's some encouragement that we're going to be talking about, the assurances that we can have in our faith. But don't run past this, this text if you're finding yourself in a place in life where you are showing pattern after pattern after pattern of sin. The author of Hebrews isn't getting at, well, like you're struggling in one area of your life. Well, if you're struggling in that area, well, God's just going to say, forget you at some point. That's not what he's saying because he has multiple different kinds of warnings. I mean, some of the marks of those who are in danger of going astray, he talks about drift in chapter two, as we've talked about. And in chapter three, he talked about a gradual hardening of the heart, uh, uh, a refusal to live by faith and perseverance in chapter 4, a spiritual dullness or a lack of evidence of growth, as we talked about last week in chapter 5. And then in chapter 10, we're going to talk about the, the, what happens even when someone stops meeting with other Christians. 
So he's painting a picture, not of just like, I'm struggling in this area or in this few areas. He's talking about an an all-encompassing rejection of God. And don't, don't get there. Don't even go close to there. Be be warned, be wary. But he's not wanting to put us in a place of doubt because, because the passage turns rather than for it to be a place of like, okay, I need to go do something so that I don't lose my faith. No, he, he actually points out something. He shares an illustration here of land. So look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, cultivated receives a blessing from God. So the rain comes and it produces a crop and it's bearing fruit. And certainly then it says, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So yeah, he has this contrast of this field. And you see that contrast. Right, whether it's some of the fruit trees, the vines, or the trees, there's a, there's a life cycle for those. There's a time in which they go and they, they cut all the vines down or they cut all the trees down, they rip them out of the ground, and they burn them so that they can replant new ones. And it is a, it is a harsh image when it, we're talking about eternity. We don't want to allow ourselves to die, but, but the encouragement is this. So look at verse 9. He says this, though we speak in this way. So he knows it's a warning, but he doesn't want them to stay there. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. He wants them to know it. He wants them to know they're loved. He knows he's just shared some hard things with them. And he wants to say, you know, in your life, it is different. I want you to have assurance of your salvation. He's trying to get their attention. Like he's doing this. Like he's like, I know I just talked about some things. I, can I get your attention? I want, I want to get, I want to get your attention. And he says, beloved, he says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's talking about in their case, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he sees something in them. Though he's seen some things that he's concerned about and he he puts the warning and he puts it in as stark terms as possible so they can understand the seriousness of sin, but he wants them to know God is at Work. He wants them to have assurance of salvation. He wants them to have confidence that they have a changed life. So what is he talking about when he says, your work and the love that you have shown? Well, we actually learn about some of the things he's talking about later on in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, this is what he says about these saints. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So they had been exposed to persecution, and then they were were partnering with others who were being exposed to persecution. Not just like coming along and helping, bringing a meal, but like people are coldly getting persecuted for their faith. For you had compassion on those in prison 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. These aren't lightweights. Joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. We'll ponder that more when we get to that text in the future. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So it's like, you know what's true. Since you know you have a better possession and an abiding one, they know the depths of the truths of the gospel. Certainly, he says, you know, don't, don't slip back. Don't, don't go back. Don't, don't be immature. Press on to maturity. But I've seen something in you that is outward and a testimony of what's happened inwardly in your life. Something happened inwardly in you because you knew you had a, a better possession and an abiding one. And that's what I see in you. And that's what I see in you, me, me talking to you. I see in you. An inward peace that comes only from knowing Christ. Peace and joy. I've heard your testimonies. I've heard you talk about being in the depths of despair and God saving you. I've heard you talk about God seeing you through the many seas and trials of life. I've walked with some of you at the very bottom and and you look and you see Christ, there's something in you inwardly that's different. And I want to remind you of that. And then there is outward fruit of a changed life. There's outward fruit. I mean, he talks about a field. I remember the, the parable of the sower. I mean, back in Matthew chapter 13, you remember the parable of the sower where they're sowing seeds. Some of the seeds fall along the path and some fall along the rocky ground and some fall along the, the thorns and others fall on the good soil. But the, the root of, of that story getting to it is that some fall on the good soil and this is what, what the, the description of what happens. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 in another 30. So fruit comes when you see fruit. That's an assurance that God is at work in your life. Now it talks about different kinds, different amounts of fruit. Some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. So don't be over here looking at the guy sitting next to you or the gal sitting across the room and go, man, they, look at all that fruit. They must really be a strong Christian. I don't have that kind of fruit. That's not how, God's not doing that. Is there fruit in your life? Do you see the fruit in your life? I need my small group sometimes to remind me of that when I'm just completely discouraged, have an inability in some moments to look up and see Christ. They want to remind me, you know, God, God's actually at work. We've actually seen him do some things in your life. And that's what we want to do for one another. We want to encourage one another. Because the love that we have for one another is a display that, that he's in us. Some of you, that change is a truthful tongue. Maybe you were a compulsive liar, and now you tell the truth. Maybe you have forgiven when you were more marked by bitterness. Maybe you have a generous heart when you used to be stingy. Maybe you're now patient when you used to be impatient. Maybe you are enduring when you used to give up. Maybe you now have courage when you used to fear. Maybe there's compassion that the Lord has given you for others. I'm still amazed when I care for other people. 
That might sound odd to you. But before I knew Christ, I really didn't care for other people. I used every relationship I had for my own benefit. Whether it was doing things for my parents or whether it was beating my brother until he got bigger than me or whether it was uh, the relationships that I had with friends, there was just always some angle there. And when I actually, for the first time or the first few times after becoming a Christian, actually loved on somebody and did something to serve them without my benefit, I, I really didn't know what to do with that. I saw it happen. I saw it happen to me. I'm like, did I just do that? That's not to toot my own horn. It's to toot of God, God's grace in my life. I know you have stories like that. I've heard them. So we have a hope because God's at work in us. So he gives us eternal life. But he, he, Jesus tells us this. So if you're, if you're struggling, maybe you're struggling like my friend Brad was. I, I'm not sure. Like I feel like really discouraged and I feel like I failed in this way and in this way. You know, is God just done with me? Jesus says this in John 10, verses 28 and 29. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Boy, I have to go back and hold on to that. And sometimes I'm not holding on to that because I need to be aware he's holding on to me. So even if you're in the place where you are weak and discouraged, there's hands that are holding you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You're not walking on the edge maybe going to fall off. He wants you and he wants you to turn your gaze to him. He's going to strengthen your weak knees and, and move you to press into him so that you can press on in confidence. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. So when he's saying press in, he's not saying press in, you know, pull yourself up your bootstraps, add some stuff to your to-do list so that you can get stuff done. He's saying press in because you have the full assurance of hope until the end. And he's saying this in verse 12. He says, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises so that you may not be sluggish. One thing you might not know, that the, in the original text, Wes pointed this out to me as we were talking about this text earlier in the week, that in the original, this phrase not to be sluggish is the same that is used to describe become dull of hearing back in verse 11 that we talked about last week in chapter five. So those are kind of like the bookends. And the the, the truth is that that's getting at don't be lazy. But when I hear don't be lazy, I kind of respond to that. Because I'm a, I'm a list maker and a doer. Like I like to get things done. I resonate with the get or done phrase. 
I so much like to get things done. If I do something that's not on my to-do list, I'll put it on my to-do list so that I can check it off because I just want to get things done. And some of you are in that place. And, and, and you're like, that's me. So when I hear the term like, like the lazy, I don't want you to do that. I'm like, well, I must need to go and do something. And if you're in that place, you need to know that what, what you go to do needs to be rooted in the assurance of the hope that you have in Christ. You're found in him. You no longer need to do anything to get his favor. You don't have to do anything to get his favor because what he did is what earns you that favor. That's where you need to live in the good of. Now, there's a reality. There's, there's those of you that are like, man, you do that, you need to take it down a notch. You need to unwind just a little bit. But those kind of on the other end of the spectrum are like, yeah, I'm just chilling. The, the assurance of hope should stir you to action. Again, not because it earns you anything, but stir you to action because you have the hope that you're going to be with Christ in heaven for eternity. So let us press into Christ. Let us press into Christ. John Piper said, faith grows strong with use and it dies with disuse. He, he said, we all know what happens to an organ or a limb of the body that is not exercised. It atrophies, it shrivels, it, it may even die. But the, the attitude of, of, of this passage is to press in, to use it, to press into the full assurance of the hope that you have. And be imitators. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be imitators of the ones who shared Christ with you that have endured with faith. Look to the ones that have gone before us. Not just the great saints of the faith. Maybe you've read biographies of the great saints. Or you read about the great saints in the word. But you have great saints in your life. Some of them are sitting here in this room that you've looked to, that have gone before you in their faith. Follow in their faith. Press on. To not, not just to be like them, but to be like them in the manner that they are like Christ, pressing in to Christ. So we press in. Richard Phillips said this, where then do you look for assurance? You can and should look to the unchanging character of God and the certainty of his promises. You can and should look to the once-for-all work of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for all your need. Do not look to yourself, to the strength of your faith, to the protection of various spiritual disciplines or methodologies, however useful they may be. It is not yourself or any regimen that depends on human strength that assures your salvation, but God, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. That is the writer's own conclusion at the end of the book of Hebrews. In assurance, as in all else, salvation belongs to the Lord. So yes, let's be sobered by the warning, but let's press on in full assurance. We don't, we don't live out of fear, we live out of faith in the one who has 
changed us by the power of his gospel. Now, before we close, I want to just have, have, a, have a brief few words to those of you who are parents who have wayward children or those of you who are just in a situation where you have loved ones who are wayward, those who may have shown a measure of faith and they're currently not walking with God and you agonize about their soul. In fact, when you come to a text like this, you, you are less concerned about you and you are constantly thinking about them. This, this is something you need to hear. Psalm 44, 21 says this. It says, for he knows the secrets of the heart. God knows the secrets of the heart. God is the only one knows, who knows the condition of your loved one or the condition of your child. And the gospel is the only answer. And I know with God, all things are possible. And rather than trying to figure out is, where are they at? Have they ever really truly trusted in Christ? Did they trust in Christ and now they've completely rejected him? What, where, where are they at? And the, rather than thinking through all of those things and getting yourself all worked up, trust in the power of the gospel. Never lose faith in the power of the gospel. Never stop reaching out. I mean, Peter exhorts wives of unbelieving husbands to live in such a way that their faith would, would win their husbands. So be an example. Live your life in such a way that is not demanding of them, but rather displays Christ for them. Not demanding of them, but one that displays Christ for them. Jesus, Jesus didn't rule follow people into the kingdom. He loved them. He displayed righteousness before them, not self-righteousness. He called them to himself. And the way that you can do that is you, you press into Christ. You press into the glories of Calvary. And then you seek to love them. I want to leave you with this illustration of a story. In World War II, according to the proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute, the USS Astoria was engaged by the Japanese on August 8th and 9th in 1942. And at about 200 hours, a young Midwesterner, a signalman, uh, third class, Elgin Staples was his name, was swept overboard by a blast that came to the ship. Wounded in both legs by shrapnel and in semi-shock, he was kept afloat by a narrow life belt that he had on. He managed to activate this with a simple trigger mechanism. 
that about four hours later, Staples was rescued by a passing destroyer and returned to the Astoria, whose captain was attempting to save the ship uh, by beaching the ship. And the effort failed. And Staples, still wearing the same life belt, found himself back in the water. And then he was picked up again, this time by the US, USS President Jackson. He was one of 500 survivors of the battle who were evacuated. But once he was being transported, he, for the first time, closely examined the life belt that had served him so well. It had been manufactured by the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio, and bore a registration number. Given home leave, Staples told his story and asked his mother, who worked for the Firestone Company, about the purpose of the number on the belt. And she replied that the company insisted on personal responsibility for the war effort, that each person would, would take ownership to be diligent to do their job because they were making products that could, could help and save the lives of young men and women. And she said that that, that number was unique and assigned to only one inspector. And, and Staples, he remembered everything about the life belt and he shared with her the number. And it was his mother's number. It was his mother's personal code and affixed to every item she was responsible for approving. So now almost 80 years ago, this happened. A mother's unheralded diligence in an anonymous wartime job. Her diligence in her job made sure her soon-to-be shipwrecked sons had the hope of survival. How much more is our diligence in spiritual matters? Not that it will just be affect, affecting us and we should have that hope of assurance, but if you are burdened for someone that you love, how much more your diligence to pressing into Christ and letting the light of the gospel shine through you. And as we pray, our hope is that that loved one would one day be saved because they encounter Christ and have a radical transformation. So let's, let's have the assurance of hope that's before us. Let us, let us press into Christ to know him more intimately. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I want to pray right now specifically for the loved ones. I want to pray, God, for the loved ones, those uh, who we love, probably most of whom aren't, aren't even seated in this room. I pray, God, for them that they would see Christ, that they would come to saving faith in Christ, that they would understand what Christ has done. And I want to pray for those of us who are in this room, 
the ones that love them. Pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a patient endurance. That you would point us to the hope that we have. That the ability to see them come to Christ doesn't reside in us, but it resides in the power of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us a greater picture of Christ, that we would have just even a growing assurance of our own faith, a, a greater delight, a greater experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that doesn't just have the benefit of, of our own intimacy with you and knowing you, but I pray, Lord, it would have the effect and change the way that we interact with those that we love. And I pray that the aroma of Christ would come not only to those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing. So we ask, God, that you would do that work in our midst and in the midst of those that we love. We ask, God, that you would do this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.